The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host for today, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined by Tyler Ball. Hey, Tyler, what's going on? All right. Uh, just to remind you guys that you can check us out via Twitter at KTSPod, and you can also follow us at the tag KTSPod, and you can follow follow our four co-hosts on Twitter uh, via uh, Don DeLorente is at Don DeLorente, uh, myself, TA Ball number one. Tobias Wilborn at Ben Wilborn 19. Tobias is currently on the road uh, with the Atlanta Braves. He may be joining in with us uh, during our broadcast, but uh, he's kind of getting getting used to that West Coast life. Uh, he's currently in Denver with the uh, as the Braves prepare to take on the Rockies in a weekend series. And of course, our lady host Jesse at That's So Jesse. You can also find those score at cspn.us you can also find us on itunes soundcloud stitcher radio and google play you can also download subscribe and listen to us on any app for any mobile device so we're going to get right into it with of course the nba draft took place on thursday night a lot of young men realized their childhood dreams as they became pros um the fashion was pretty good nobody was too outrageous um the thing this year seems to be designs on the inside of the coat and uh you know shoes and socks kind of make your statements so you know the young boys showed up and showed out as far as the fashion goes now as far as the actual um you know draft itself the big news that came out of the draft was of course jimmy butler getting traded to the minnesota timberwolves so tyler kind of weigh in tibbs and uh, Jimmy Butler reunited. He's got some very young pieces over there. Carl Anthony Towns. He's got uh, Wiggins. Um, they've got Ricky Rubio still running the point. As of right now, things may change uh, once free agency and, you know, that part of the season, offseason starts up. So your first initial thoughts, uh, you know, seeing that trade go down within the first 10 minutes of the draft. Um, I have two thoughts. One, this trade was supposed to happen last year. Um, it was quite, It was talked about a lot during the off season last and during last season's draft. But who would believe that the general managers actually got along and made the deal? Uh, I don't think it's as shocking now that the bulls wanted to rebuild and they weren't necessarily comfortable with Jimmy Butler being the face of the bulls franchise. I personally think that that's just horrible uh, you're you're giving up on a guy that's in his prime with two years on his contract. Why don't you want him to be the guy? I I'm gonna... think it has nothing to do with, with Michael Jordan, nothing to do with the organization, but they chose the head coach mm-hmm. over right. the player, and that's something that, the, that today's NBA you generally don't do. Uh, not since about uh, when was that 1980 when Magic orchestrated the tra- the uh, firing of uh, Westhead to get Pat Riley. Yeah, that's about that's about the that's about the beginning of it where you know you realize that the players could make things happen with the coaches. So um, I think that you're right. You're exactly right. They see more in Hoiberg and, and what he's doing. And you have to think about it. Chicago's on the hook for Tibbs. They would be on the hook for Hoiberg. And then they would be on the hook for the, whatever coach they brought in next. 
So, you know, financials has a lot to do with it as well when it comes to this decision, I think, too, because the outspokenness of Jimmy Butler definitely has maybe undermined or undercut uh, Hoiberg's authority um, as far as discipline and getting the team to play consistently. And, um, you know, like you said, the front office, I guess they just said, hey, if we got to pick one, we see more in Hoiberg long-term than Jimmy Butler because he's coming up to get paid in a couple of years. And that's a hassle we won't have to deal with. Um, and him, you know, maybe being a bad influence to our younger players that we do have too. So, Well, here's the thing about that. You get a coach that believes in pace and space, but you've got non-pace and space guys. It's weird to me. You, This is a slow team. The Bulls are a slow team, which is why uh, – but you have to remember, though, they're trying to, you know, it's kind of like a football team. When you go from a run-heavy defensive team and then all of a sudden you want to get with the new wave and you get one of these new high-flying offensive coaches, you can't just change everybody in one season or two seasons. It takes a couple of three seasons to get your your personnel to match your, your, your new type of scheme. So I think that's kind of what they're in the middle of. They're trying to get rid of Tibbs' old you know, Derrick Rose, Jimmy Butler style players and get with the new type of players, but it's just taking them a little longer. Which is fine. Uh, I just believe that the fran- that their franchise uh, is kind of in a rut right now, and the only way they're going to get out is to, number one, have one of these guys pan out to be just a legitimate starter first, and then you're going to eventually have to win in free agency and bring up an all-star, a young all-star talent that's going to, you know, get you, get you buckets. I mean, that's, that's probably the only way you're going to hang around in the East because the East is getting younger because the superstars are headed West, which we'll talk about later, but the East is going to be filled with a lot of young, young, talented pace and space type guys, a lot of shooters around the perimeter. You may have an occasional uh, forward in a low post or, some some teams may have a semblance a semblance of a big man or a stretch four that can score. Um, that's a two way score. So the Bulls have decided to rebuild now. They dra- they went ahead and got uh, Zach Levine, and they went ahead and drafted uh, Laurie Marketing from Arizona, who is your your typical European big man who can step out and shoot the three. He shot him in in the mid forties from three-point range during the during conference season. Right. So quite effect, one of the most effective players in the in the Pac, Pac-12. And that was without their best player, by the way. So marketing can help, but at the same time, uh, that's going to open up a spot for somebody else because they barely got in as the eighth seed last year, which should have gone to Miami. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just it was just that Miami had had played, had fallen a little bit too far behind in the first half of the season. I think the East is like, to me, they're about three or four years behind as a conference to the West. Not just talking about the talent. You know, the talent disparity has always been there for the last decade or so. But just as far as terms of the way the style of basketball is played, they're they're behind most of their teams. Cleveland's the only one based on LeBron, having LeBron and having Kyrie. That's kind of, you know, and meeting the Warriors and getting smoked that first time, really seeing, you know, that very first final was kind of seeing like, oh, they're changing stuff. And they kind of got with it. And they seem to be the only team that 
has jumped on it, you know, wholeheartedly. I think Houston's ability to go from what they were the year prior to this season has kind of opened up to people's eyes in the East and say, okay, you know, it's possible to transform and kind of get this way. And you see a lot of teams now trying to embrace, like you're talking about, more shooting, more kind of, I call them Swiss Army knives, guys who are 6'8", 6'9", who can play two or three, maybe four positions in a pinch, and a center who's just a run and jump guy who can run, jump, rebound, play defense. Washington is As far as the East, Washington is getting there. Boston has a lot of Swiss Army knives, but they prefer to play in a slow pace. I think that's because they have a guy who's 5'8", and if they play fast, then it would probably phase him out. Right. Because because he needs the ball to be good. Right. Uh, You look at, as you look across across the East, Detroit is getting there. However, your two main parts, uh, Andre Drummond and your coach, Stan Van Gundy, are at odds. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, the words can't stand was used in, in that situation. So oh, that's on, a problem. Slow down. Okay. At what point is it Stan Van Gundy's fault? Oh, I personally <laughs> believe it's more Stan Van Gundy's fault than in, in both Detroit and Orlando because he is quick to alienate so many guys at once, so many stars at one time. Right. He's quick to do, he's, he's not willing to adapt to player strengths. And I believe it's cost him over the years. I also, I, I frankly believe it cost him a shot to win the title against the Lakers mm-hmm. because I think, uh, generically speaking, you do have Kobe Bryant, but I just thought Orlando was a better team, a better better made team than the Lakers at that time. Mm-hmm. They just didn't execute right. and they didn't go to the right guys. Right. And, and I think it also kind of showed that the white Howard wasn't the put it on his shoulders guy, give it to him, give it to him, give it to him. And he'll make everything work off of him type player that we all thought he was at the time either. Well, yeah. And that's, that's become a hot topic lately because of his trait since his trade to Charlotte, that's a conversation that, the White's legacy has been a topic of discussion because he wasn't, he was never that dumping in, go to him, right. get a bucket. He's right. always been an elite defender and an elite rebounder. Still, yeah. And I think he still can be. Just the White Howard blew came out his in, back. He came, and he also came into the league about a decade too soon because he would be the perfect big man for what everybody's doing now. The young Dwight Howard, the rim run Dwight Howard, that yeah. had athleticism and could do a little bit in the post, but could really pass out of the post. Oh man, he would be really, really primed for this type of basketball we play now. JaVel McGee should be watching tapes of early Dwight Howard, early as in first five years, Dwight Howard. And he could be awesome because that is exactly what Dwight, Dwight should be. And, And McGee has the ability. Oh, don't worry. The Chicago Bulls might have traded them the next Dwight Howard when they traded them Jordan Bell at the end of the yeah. second round, at the end of the yeah, very we'll, last pick of the draft. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to that. Uh, to, we'll we'll get to that a little bit later because that may actually keep the Warriors. That might actually give the Warriors another guarantee as far as the title next year. But uh, just in general, discussing the draft, I'm going to take take the ball with this one. Other than the Jimmy Butler trade. The draft was pretty predictable. I mean, you had Philadelphia move shifting the draft, of course, and doing a pick swap with the Celtics to get Markel Fultz, which is which is fine. They need a scoring guard to go along with their other scorer, which is who is Dario Saric. 
they also picked up Mellow Trimble uh, as an unsigned free agent, which could mean the end of the TJ McConnell era in Philly. And that that was interesting to watch. But you think about it, Mellow and Mellow Trimble can make that team. And now you have Markel, Simmons, MB, Sarich, and you could you could put any other any other guy in there, maybe another uh another stretch stretch player. Billy my, Billy becomes interesting. My my question for you though is what do they do with Oka for? Do they just cut him? Yeah, well, um Okafor's gotta have some value somewhere. But here's the problem with that. Okafor may have played himself out of trade value because he really can't coexist with anybody on the floor. He can't play with Embiid. He couldn't play with Nerlens Noel. He's definitely not going to play with Simmons. So where you go? Maybe he can be. Maybe he can go where some. He can go somewhere out west where they where somebody needs a a uh, potential uh, just a guy that can get buckets. Maybe let me, six let, man. Me, let me let me yeah. I was about to say. Let me ask you. What is his particular skill set though? Is he you know? Is oh, he just can, a, he's a big he just man a scoring machine. Yeah. He's a big man that gets buckets. Jabari Parker, but taller. He, Parker gets buckets for his size, but his problem is he stays hurt and has no clue on the defensive end. Ironically, we're talking about both of these guys because they're they're Duke teammates. So it's the same problem. They have no clue on the defensive end. And that team, Philadelphia, is actually going to be a defensive team first. They're, going, they're not going to get a lot of buckets, so they're going to have to play defense. And Okafor just looks lost. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of that's always been the wild card kind of looking at their team. It's like, man, they're kind of going the opposite direction. They're kind of doing like the San Antonio. They're loading up on everybody that's real tall and got some athleticism. And they're they're trying to they're thinking about playing the game totally different than everybody else. I think while everybody else is going for space and pace, they're going for okay, if you're gonna be small. If we can get our guys to run up and jump and be athletic enough, you actually might have to change and have to guard us, and you might not have enough players on your roster to guard us. Speaking of which, um, the team that I affectionately call Team Pterodactyl, uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, picked up another big man with super long arms and wingspan in uh, in uh, DJ from uh, Michigan. Uh huh. Yeah. Prizing a surprising pick all things considered but then again not a surprise because he fits that he fits the uh, bucks bill now they want tall, lanky guys who not necessarily are prolific uh, uh, scorers or defenders but they feel like they can teach the defensive scheme Mm -hmm. yeah they play kind of like a picket with all those long guys when they stretch their arms out and you know and they kind of shuffle they kind of make like a picket fence so it's kind of yeah if you ever watch the it's like a spider web if you ever watch the way that they play defense on pick and rolls because you know their guys are so long they almost touch arms when they you know stretch their arms out and they're playing the pick and rolls so it's I understand what you're talking about as far as their scheme and teaching it and having these guys with all this wingspan who can take up space because they shuffle, they have to do half as much moving of their feet because their arms are so long. (laughs) So as long as they don't reach and keep their arms out and just, you know, keep their feet moving, it's hard to get around those guys. And they force into a lot of jump shots. That's how they were beating uh, Toronto until DeRozan and and, uh, my man finally started, you know, taking their mid range shots a little bit more. But that was kind of their scheme, kind of keep them out of the paint and make them take these long shots. 
rebound the ball. I mean, they're all, the only thing that hurt them against Toronto, the fact that they there was two teams that couldn't score, mm-hmm. but they had nobody that could that could get out and guard uh, DeMar DeRozan in the mid range. Right. They, they they couldn't guard they couldn't guard him for long. He he had he had three breakout games, and then you know they just held on for they pretty much had to hold on for dear life, and and right. fortunately they couldn't have they. Didn't have another. The Milwaukee didn't have another score. Yeah, there. That's kind of and going back to Jabari Parker. Jabari Parker's in plays in that series. Milwaukee wins it. Yeah, th- but they're also one sure enough count on shooter away too. Like that's the. I think that's a two things, three things you kind of need in today's basketball. You need a point guard who can score, but you know still does point guard things, can still play make for everybody. You need a shooting big man that can stretch your court out and you need one other shooter that is like 40% guy that, you know, majority of the time, if you leave it open, everybody kind of hangs their head because they know it's going to go in. Well, um, as we look, as we break down, we've already broken down pretty much the, the first three position. Well, the first, um, the first two don't really can go without saying, um, Markel going number one, Markel Fultz, second pick Lonzo ball. We've, you know, we've talked about Lonzo enough. It was, that was the obvious choice. Jason Tatum ending at Duke. Boston trading down, and they actually chose Tatum over Josh Jackson, which may have been a bit of a surprise. But here's the thing. Tatum can get buckets. That seems and, to be the theme of all the new tall Duke guys, right? They can just get buckets. Yeah. They, they don't do anything else. They don't play defense. They're not very good at rebounding, but they just get buckets. Yeah, and, and Boston – they got enough defenders. They got they got arguably three of the league's top fifteen defenders. Uh, you could make a case, uh, despite the flopping, you can make a case for Marcus Smart being an all league defender. Avery Batley's already there, and Jay Crowder is an irritant. Mm-hmm. So now you need a guy, and and uh, their rookie from last year, uh, from uh, from Cal, the point guard guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he got a lot he's, of good run. He can he can defend too. Yeah, and they added another. They've got another guy from Louisville that's that's pretty solid. So they need some scores. So Tatum fit Tatum fits that bill, and I actually I actually like that. I was kind of thinking he was. I kind of thought the picks were going to be flipped. Mm-hmm. I thought well, Boston would take Jackson and Phoenix would then take Tatum, but it worked out the opposite way. I, I Jackson that, going to Phoenix is great. I think that what helps out Tatum is he's going to get Al Horford's spot when Al Horford goes to the bench. And that, like you said, if he uses him as a six-man role for Al Horford, then, you know, that's more punch off the bench, which can win you a lot of games, especially in the playoffs. Phoenix is going to be fun to watch getting Jackson. You get you have um, you have the two guards. You've got Bledsoe and Booker. And then you add Jackson on the wings. There's going to be a lot of fast breaks. Do they believe in Earl Watson there? Are they, you know, are they, is he like in a hot seat situation or does he have kind of, the, looks like the same kind of um, leeway and time that like Alvin Gentry has with the Pelicans? Yeah, their organization, um, I actually listened to uh, Bob Kemp, who is the NBC radio uh, guy out of Phoenix, used to be of the Sporting News. Kemp has, uh, Kemp has pretty much said that uh, he's probably got two more seasons to prove himself mm-hmm. and let, uh, but um, the Kings, I mean, the uh, Suns have to show improvement and they definitely would have to be into a 10 or 15 win 
uh, marked improvement from the previous seasons for them to really believe in, uh, really believe in, in Watson. Now, was looking like, of course, with Hornacek going to the disaster that is the New York Knicks, uh, their decision to let to let Hornacek go wasn't a bad one. So I don't know. Bill uh, uh, Jackson see. might be making him look worse than he actually is because I, I, to me, Phoenix was one of the few teams that was kind of getting it along with the Warriors. They were like maybe two steps behind the Warriors. They mm-hmm. they were you know they were making their way that towards that way with Hornacek, and then to you know, have him just leave and go to what he thought was going to be a better situation. Well, just more money really is what it was. Bad move by him. I think Hornacek is the one kicking himself going, man, I should have stayed in Phoenix. Yeah. Not the other way around. I Mm -hmm. think Phoenix is like, man, it would have been nice to still have you because I think he may be a better just X and O's coach with more experience than Watson. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I think Jeff Hornacek, someone holding his head every morning going, why did I get out of that situation to come to this? And you look at Sacramento, which took uh, – Sacramento actually did pretty well. You get De'Aaron Fox. You get Justin Jackson in the first round. Mm-hmm. I and actually, they, took a, uh, they took a risk pick. They also got Harry Giles. And they got you know. Harry Giles. Who could, well, well, I mean, if you get two guys that can, that will end up playing for you, Giles can take a little bit longer to develop because you're a developing team. So mm-hmm. um, you've, you've gotten over the, the, the shadow that is Woogie Cousins. And now you just try to uh, put some points on and, and see what happens. Um, again, Sacramento has always kind of been one of these outliers as a franchise. You know, they've never really had any true success except for the stretch where Adelman came in, who is a brilliant offensive mind. And he had Pete Carell, and they were kind of the first ones to institute a Princeton kind of style looking offense into the NBA with Jason Williams and Vlade and Chris Weber and Peja shooting, you know, they kind of, for their era, changed up how people were playing basketball. Do they have that type of coach right now with all these young players? Can they, do they have somebody in their system and their organization that has a offense or a style of basketball that can make them um, a, a team that's worth contending? Because historically they can't get free agents. Um, they, run through a whole bunch of young players that we think are good when they get drafted and then they go out there and their careers are just over or they, you know, get traded away to, you know, play better for the team to get traded to. So kind of what can they do to fix their graveyard? Yeah, that's, that's a complete organizational overhaul and that starts from the top. So that that's a reputation. That's kind of a reputation thing because nobody's going to go there. <laughs> Not right now. It's, I mean, the, I think that Boogie situation was handled horribly and it just makes them look bad to potential prospects. But, you know, they've got some building blocks and, you know, um, Omri Caspi's not a bad, not a bad look there at the, um, he's another six, seven, six, eight guy who can step out and shoot. So um, Fox is going to have plenty of options on the wings. So that'll be fun to look at. Um, going further down, you get to, um, you get a building block in Jonathan Isaac from ACC, Florida State. Um, he's kind of – he's an interesting case because he's probably the one with the most potential, per se, uh, because he really didn't can't get a chance to show in in uh, league play. However, he really, really tore up the scene in the Chicago pre-draft uh, competition. And he is seen as the future – but, you know, he's a tall, 
front. He's a tall guy who can shoot the ball in the front court, and that's that's what Orlando used to be. So yeah. maybe maybe they get some pieces around him. Um, we'll we'll see because they've they've got some big men already, and they've got some forwards. So I'm I'm looking to see what what they do as far as they get as far as the guard position. Uh, speaking of guards, you've got uh, an interesting run at eight and nine with the Knicks taking Frank, uh, Frank uh, Tilakina. Oh, that's very good. I, I didn't think you were going to get it. And you got the Mavericks taking Dennis Smith. Now, that's interesting because uh, Tilakina was considered to be the top European prospect. Uh, he's playing well in this French league. As a matter of fact, his, his uh, team is currently playing in the finals of the French league in their um, their best of five. Uh, he's a, he can, you know, apparently he can score. There's not enough. There wasn't enough film on him because he was actually a backup that was pressed into duty when the starter went down on his team. Uh, most most of the experts here say that he looks like he has game, but they need to see more. So interesting that the Knicks would take such a risk. And then you have two guys that they know are here that are on the table with Dennis Smith and eventually Malik Monk, who fell to the Hornets at 11. What that tells me, Tyler, is two, is one, is this one thing. Phil Jackson is there, and Phil Jackson is going to be there. So the players may not be there, but Phil Jackson is going to be there. And they're going to run a triangle. Because if yep. they were trying to play – the, you know, get into line with everybody else. Like we've been kind of theme of the show, kind of changing their style to kind of match what is what basketball is going to. Then they would have picked one of these explosive scoring first kind of guards. But the film on this guy is he's very tall, which is kind of, you know, the first thing for the point guard in the triangle is to be tall. Ron Harper, Scotty Pippen, point forward type player who can just get around guys with one quick dribble and then once you play your defense and you shift then he can either get to the cup pass to the triple threat thing that's kind of what this guy's the film the very film that they had on highlights kind of looked like he had he was you know get around you with one quick step and if you don't have anybody behind there he could take it all the way to the lane but he was doing a lot of passing and i think that that just tells me they're going full triangle and whatever jeff pointer said wants to do with the fast break he better tell them hey guys get the rebound and get down there and hopefully we can get the ball in the basket before we have to set up to run the triangle. Exactly. Well, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and Dilakina is not the uh, fast break guy. He is a pure triangle guy. He's one of right, those guys that right. you find that you, you don't know if he can create his own shot. You know, that maybe that you can get him open off screens and he can not, he can probably knock down a perimeter jumper. Right. Almost like, like the bulls where you had your, your um, your shorter shooters like Paxson and Kerr. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing about the triangle is that people don't understand is the whole thing is to get the ball to start on the side with the three men, but then to run your actions where then you get the ball back on the side with the two men with the advantage where you create a mismatch once those two guys get isolated on their side. So if you ever watch the Chicago Bulls, a lot of stuff you would get like Luke Longley and Michael Jordan on the same side. Well, of course, when they Luke Longley goes to set the pick, now Michael Jordan's got center on him. Or, you know or better yet, when I and it's interesting you mentioned that because I watched Game Six of the '98 Finals, and um, I watched that last night, and I was looking to see how many times those the Jordan set up opposite of the actual triangle mm-hmm. when the Bulls needed to make their second half run when Utah had the lead, they put Jordan on Jordan and Rodman 
on the same side and your three men were uh, whoever the center was, be it Longley or Winnington, you had uh, Kerr and you had Kukoc. Now, mm-hmm. Kukoc, because remember, Scottie Pippen was hurt. Mm-hmm. So you put you I, you pretty much isolated Jordan without isolating. Mm-hmm. And Utah couldn't get couldn't get called for illegal defense because whoever was guarding Jordan, be it Shannon Anderson or Brian Russell, had to stay close to him. Right. Jordan wasn't hanging around the three point line. Right. So now when Jordan gets the ball, he's essentially one on one with about 15 feet to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The difference is you don't have a shooter. Melo's not the guy that you put on isolation that because you're not sure if he can, you know, he can always go to the basket and get fouled, but he is so um, his propensity to settle for the fadeaway jumper. Mm-hmm. is just, you know, just a sign of him, his, him his, getting older, breaking down. His, his plan B is never to pass. It's to do his fadeaway jumper. It's never like, right. oh, I could shoot, but let me pass it and get it back right quick and reestablish my position again. His thing is, I it's got the go ball, up, that's, so that's it's going out. <laughs> um, now you look at the Charlotte Hornets getting Malik Monk, which is a dream pick for them. Right. A team that hasn't had a great two-guard in years or anybody yes. who can just flat out shoot. Yes. I mean. Since like Glenn Rice, maybe. That's just yeah. like, it, it gets in his hands and it goes up and he's open. You just, you know, more than likely than not, just walk down to the other end. Yeah. Quick release. Um, soon the ball. The ball rarely gets below his shoulder, which is amazing to me. When you see Malik Monk shoot, he has such long arms and is so squared that he never has to bring the ball down. Right. Uh, Absolutely brilliant release, and Andy excels in, in uh, transition on top of that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, with that comes the fact that he's not a he's not pretty much a defender at all, and and you know Kemba's not necessarily a great defender either, so they're going to struggle there. I, but, I think I think what they're going to try to work on with Clifford is okay. I got these two quick guys out front. We're going to try to get as many steals as we can, and now mm-hmm. that we've got Dwight and we've got. Kaminsky and we got Zeller, you know, and Gilchrist too. Okay, then, you know, if you guys just, you know, cover up their mistakes, but I'm going to unleash them and try to, you know, create as many steals and fast breaks as I can get. I think that's going to be their new scheme. Yeah, and I think I think he has the ability. He just needs to be taught uh, mm-hmm. in, in Malik. If he can be taught where to position himself on the defensive end, he'll, he'll be fine. This is a really big season for Gilchrist, though. I mean, you know, he's been progressing. He's been getting better. It, it seems like every year he starts out better and better, and you see it, but then he gets hurt, and he kind of, like, has a regression. But if he mm-hmm. can play a full season and show his shooting is still improving, yeah, the Hornets could – they started out really strong, and then, they you know, like, he got hurt, and they kind of, you know, fell, you know, out of playoff contention. But if he can stay strong through a whole year plus Adam Monk, they could definitely get into the bottom of the playoffs this year. Yeah, this makes them, this makes them a, a uh, this makes them definitely a playoff contender from from the jump. So you right. just have and they got to figure out how to they they've got issues in winning close games. Uh, well, that's because they don't have anybody that the rest respect enough to give them a call. They have a, they don't they don't have a superstar, and when you play close games in the fourth quarter, that is a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Pistons get another shooter in Luke Kennard. Um, Typical Detroit uh, surround surround whoever your big man is with shooters and hope you make enough shots. Uh, I, I don't think they've recovered from the Markeith Morris trade team wise. 
Uh, Stan, Stan, Stan Van is, is pretty much right where he started uh, three seasons ago. Um, I think he's still building, but Detroit is going to be always in games because they defend and, and Drum, Drummond's a, Drummond's a beast in the post, but until they figure out, first of all, who, first of all, they have to stop turning over the ball. And mm-hmm. second, they're going to have to figure out who is actually going to take the key shots. Once they do that and maybe do some inside out with Drummond, and that's well, that's kind of hard. And actually, that's kind of hard to do because he's such a poor free throw shooter. But you have to treat him like, like, uh, like DeAndre Jordan, and set him up as a decoy. Use him as a decoy, and get some guys who can get some shots up and have him dunk in the rebounds, which is what he does. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Kennard, Kennard gives you a very, very nice game. Um, kind of reminds me of of Ginobili being the, being that he's a lefty. Uh, and he actually was the steady, steady guy at Duke uh, because whenever they needed, they didn't go to Grayson Allen or to uh, Tatum when they needed buckets or they needed a clutch situation. They went to Kennard, and the offense generally ran through Kennard. Um, any other, as we fall to the very end of the lottery, uh, I like the twin tower aspect that Miami's got now as they took Bam Adebayo from Kentucky. Um, you know, up and down player during the course of the year, as Kentucky was still figuring that took court to Kentucky pretty much half the season to figure out how they were going to attack teams. But uh, to get this guy and you pair him up with with Whiteside, uh, Miami actually probably drops about five points lower than what they were last year on the defensive end, which clearly makes them a playoff team. Right. If they can just not start out the season like oh for the first like month then yeah they'll definitely be in the playoff mix yeah so um Adebayo closes out the lottery um but there were a few interesting picks um after but I like that this is where I like to draft I like to see where which players pick up I mean which which teams play which players well let me say this right which teams get the best of what's left as far as the previous season's playoff teams. Mm-hmm. My pick, and we, you know, we've already mentioned Justin Jackson and we we actually mentioned the second round pick in, in bell, mm-hmm. but the pick I really, really like is Tony Bradley from Carolina going to Utah. Mm-hmm. I love that pick because who did I, they get in the first round? They got a point. They got like a small forward shooting guard, right? Um, this is actually this is actually the end of the first round. Yeah, and, but with their pick, they traded for somebody who was like a, a like basically to take over Gordon Hayward's spot if he left. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, they traded to the Lakers. They, um, yeah, this is uh, this was the pick that they took in exchange for thirty and forty for thirty and forty two two second rounders. Right. Right. But uh, but for them to get Bradley, they they actually get a lot of they get some help. And, <laughs> He's one of those. He's 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 what the NBA draft and really the kind of NFL draft, what all drafts are about. He's the type of player that was on a good team. He was on a visible team, so everybody got to see him play. But he played just enough where you can say, you know what? If he goes back to school next year, he could really be the man. And he was like, you know what? If I come out in the draft right now, they don't have enough tape on me where I can't be the man. So it's kind of that perfect situation for him to go into the draft because, you know, he's 6'11", he can run, he can jump, he seems to have a nice little touch on his, uh, you know, 15-foot jumper. 
you know, it's all tailor made for him to come out as a big man. That's the one thing as a big man is don't stay in school too long because people sour on you. Mm-hmm. If you can be a freshman and come out and play a little bit and show some ability and show some potential, you can catch the ball, you got some good footwork, and you can score a little bit in the low post. As a big man, I would come out because if you come back next year and you don't really improve and they start and then they start saying all these flaws, oh, he's not that strong. Oh, he's not really a good rebounder. Oh, he lacks defense. Then you screwed when you think about your draft potential. Then you become like Mellow Trimble, where people talk about you being the first round number one pick, and then when you come out, you're undrafted free agent. So that was a good oh. pick. I think the Jordan Bell going to the Warriors, like we said, you know, <laughs> that just enhances them. The one way that you could kind of beat them was to beat them on the on the glass, on the offensive glass, uh, you know, rebound your misses. And now they get a young guy who can rebound the ball, pass it out, and get ahead of the break at the same time and then dunk at the end. So, yeah, they're not going to have much fall off when they go to the bench next season. Um, there was one other pick that I'm kind of interested in. Uh, TJ Leaf going to uh, the Pacers, uh, the UCLA uh, big man. Got, of course, um, there are a couple of things. Uh, when Leaf was interviewed, he had to take a Lonzo Ball question in his draft interview, which is hilarious. Uh, Leaf was very much a dangerous player uh, two years ago in uh, at his high school, where, of course, his season was ended by Geno Hughes, led by Lonzo Ball. Uh, he, this is his chance to... He finally gets to step out of out of ball shadow, but now he's going to a team where um, he's he, you know he's a safe pick, and he's actually going to give them more scoring. Uh, you know, when you pair him up with with Miles um, Tucker, I like I like this. I like having big men who can kind of kind of slow the pace down, but they can also run and jump too. And this is what what Leaf does. Uh- you know, as a Carolina fan, when, you know, looking long distance like I was doing when it looked like it was going to be either Kentucky or UCLA, when it came down to kind of looking at UCLA, I felt good about the matchup because I thought Theo Pinson could kind of guard ball. I thought that um, um, I was my little guy. Barry could, you know, hang with Alford. The one guy who scared me to death was DJ Leaf. I was like, we ain't got nobody for him because he can take Hicks and, and Meeks away from the basket, shoot over the top of them, and work them in the low post, too. I was like, he's Chris Jenkins all over again. I don't want to play them at all. And I think, you know, like you're saying, his versatility as a big guy with his post-ups plus his shooting is really going to be uh, beneficial, uh, whether he comes off the bench or if he, um, you know, makes it in as a starter. So um, basically what we're trying to tell you all folks is, um, yeah, Basketball is gonna is changing. All the guys who used to be six nine, six ten, six eleven, who used to stand underneath the basket, put two feet in the paint. Now they're gonna be the guys that everybody wants to grow up to be like because they're gonna be shaking and baking and dribbling and shooting threes. And you're gonna see all these six nine, six ten guys with their jerseys. Everybody's wearing their jerseys because they're doing things that small forwards and guards used to do when we came up and we used to buy their jerseys. It's 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 weird still to me seeing a six eight. Six nine six ten guy who prefers to step out and hit the three. That's uh, the Kevin Garnett effect. I call that the Kevin Garnett, Garnett KG, effect. KG, the three point line, the the ninety eight ninety nine season where the three point line was moved in and event and of course take it right back out <laughs> because you had guys like Antoine Walker leading the league in three point attempts. But uh, but I think that it's that effect and. I just think that players are just developing and they're seeing what what gets them into the league. 
what skills can get them into the league as as younger players. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at the they, you know they they sop up basketball like a sweat steel, and they see they see the um, they see the big guys stepping out, and they're seeing the Kevin Durant's. Uh, you know those those type guys stepping out and, and shooting the threes, but still perfecting on their handle. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the league is changing. The on court version of the league is changing, and despite what the uh, quote unquote the old heads are saying, I personally think it's better because we as fans like offense. I, mm-hmm. I you know yeah you're, you're selling me on this whole we they don't play no defense. Uh, no, we 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 want to we want to hit guys. We want to get physical. Nobody wants to see that. Man, it was good for rivalries, but um, it's good for rivalries and all that stuff. And we don't like each other. Blah blah blah. I, I I'm, I'm I'm cool on all that. To be honest, because at the end of the day, it's about who out executes whom, and it, it doesn't have to be a a. Uh, I, I've never been sold on the intimidation factor of these of these teams even the teams of the past bottom line the bad boys ultimately won because they had two dynamically skilled offensive players um and they got some help on the defensive guy they were they were a great defensive team but they had two high-end skilled players that could get buckets let me let me let me, let me jump in people don't understand everybody thinks about the detroit piston bad boys and they were great and they won titles and that's why they're iconic but the Pistons before that one, you know, they played in the two high scoring games in the NBA history, right? They played in the high scoring playoff game and they played in the high scoring regular season game. Doug Moe. Absolutely. Right. So, so the Pistons, the early Pistons, even with Lambeer, young Isaiah Thomas, they were a scoring machine. They were offense, offense, offense. They were go, 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 go. They, you know, they would run with the Celtics and those games were high scoring. It wasn't until the second time where they played the Lakers where they realize, man, we can't run with Showtime, so the only thing that we can do to actually give us some advantage is to muck it up. And unfortunately, it won them back-to-back titles playing that way, and the whole NBA shifted that way for a decade until Steve Nash and and, uh, D'Antoni came along and kind of got us geared up to where, you know, the Warriors have kind of expanded upon what they did. But as a kid who watched that, 89 to 74 basketball? Oh, no. Don't ever bring that back. I, ever. I, we can talk. Oh, gosh. Heat game. All of those rivalries that we've seen 30 for 30s on now, they were bad basketball games. Look, uh, Bulls, uh, uh, Bulls Pistons, Knicks Pacers. Uh, oh, gosh. Knicks Heat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, some of those games were literally like 79 to 65. Some of those games are in the record books for the lowest scoring playoff games in history. Yeah. And Pat Pat Riley, the creator of Showtime, was at the center of two of those rivalries. Right. Because he's incredible. Right. Because, man, when he came to the Knicks, it was like, man, if he brings Showtime to the Knicks, they're going to be so light years ahead of the East because they're still playing this, you know, Detroit. Pistons style basketball, but man, he came to the Knicks and he just kind of doubled. He was like, "I got Mason, I got um, Oakley." Yeah, we've been to rub some boys up. <laughs> he got, he had, he had the dream set up for a muck it up type roster. He had Patrick Ewing, who who was still in his prime. 
you have um and he had guards that weren't to that weren't great shooters right. so Derek Harper do was play that yeah Der- well he he picked up Derek Harper in free agency but before then he had uh he had Anthony Ward Childs mm-hmm. uh, you know Rolando Bra- Rolando Blackman left their best uh, shooter yeah, was Alex Hubert Davis, who was coming off the bench as a, like a rookie. <laughs> yeah. With, with, and then you had uh, Allen Houston, and actually he ended up there, and, and Houston came back to haunt his old dean in Miami. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it was it was interesting that Riles um, changed his style almost a decade later and, you know, ended up going to the finals uh, with the Knicks. Mm-hmm. Yep. It was nuts. Yes, totally nuts. But that's just that's just how much of an influence the bad boys and their style of basketball just had on the game at that time. Because if you if you go back and look at those numbers before the Pistons started winning their championships, those finals games are high scoring. I mean, mm-hmm. there are, every game's in the hundreds, high nineties. There's not a lot of muck it up basketball. There's a lot of free flowing, fast breaking, you know, good looking basketball. Even with all the hand checking and, and all the things that the physicality that you could have. Guys still, you know, got the scores up high, you know. So, yeah, this brand of basketball, as far as what we see on the court, how it's played, the freedom of motion, the offensive, um, you know, the skills, the strategy, um, even with the defense, even with the zone, quote unquote, being in the league, it still hasn't taken away from, you know, the individual players that are have the skills to be able to show what they can do. And that's what NBA basketball is really all about at its core, is the skills of the individuals being able to be showcased within the team concept a lot of nba basketball is kind of the plays are ran to get the advantage for their best player and it's not necessarily closest to the basket whereas when you grow up playing basketball when you're taught it's always move the ball to get the best shot closest to the basket so tyler let's switch from the draft and let's go into maybe some uh you know offseason stuff we're going to free agencies coming up uh next week we had blake griffin and we had chris paul out, out of their contracts Nope. So this looks like it may, you know, I said on the last show that Clippers may, with the uh, addition of Jerry West in their front office, that they may be gearing up to be the destination ultimately for LeBron. So kind of, you know, explain to the fans kind of how this makes that scenario a little bit closer. Okay, well, no shock here with um, Griffin and Paul uh, becoming free agents. This is uh, mere formality, I believe, on definitely on Paul's part. Um, Paul, who was recently reelected as the uh, NBA Players Association president, um, is kind of kind of established. Um, he knows that he's going to be a leader everywhere he goes. I believe he has a relationship with Rivers, and there's a lot of motivating characteristics to stay in LA. I know he's been linked with uh, with San Antonio, and I'm not sure if he really wants to go there and deal with uh, Popovich. I, I, I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that type of offense is what he wants. However, Blake Griffin is another variable. I actually think Griffin is heavily influenced by um, his success off the court, uh, the commercials, the, the Cali lifestyle. Um, there's a lot of things that he, that he has going for him out in L.A., and the two teams that have already announced that they're going to actively pursue him are two of the quote unquote uh, hit towns that you know people deride these cities for being 
and that would be, of course, his home, close to home in Oklahoma City and the Indiana Pacers. Well, the advertising stuff isn't going to matter because he's all he can always get that stuff. But Blake considers him considers himself as an actor possibility. He also considers himself as a guy who just you know likes that he likes the spotlight and L.A. Other than New York, L.A. is L.A. and it's very hard to give up, especially when you are a supermax qualifier. Um, now the question is, does he take less or does Paul take less to help out um, Jerry West bring in a third free agent, maybe a Paul George, who even though Paul George said he wants to be a Laker, uh, you may be able to steal Paul George on a one-year rental and convince him to stay. I mean, he's in L.A. He's not in a rebuilding situation in the Clippers with the Clippers. So why not? They have a seven-foot issue, though. Seven-foot-tall issue in DeAndre Jordan. He's the one dude that's going to make all this not go right because they can't get out from up underneath him. And if they do kind of come back to retool with Paul George, he doesn't fit on the court anymore. Well, George, George had well, – well, here's the thing. George doesn't necessarily need to be the 25 to 30 point a game night guy anymore if he goes to L.A. He immediately solves their their small forward problem that's been there since Doc took over as coach. He can play defense. He can get you 20. You can let go of J.J. Redick. You may, may have to let go of, of a bench piece or two. But a lineup with Jordan, Griffin, uh, Paul, uh, Paul George, whoever's at two guard, it doesn't really matter. And and Chris Paul, I, I mean, roll the basketball out and run. You can put, you can start Jamal Crawford at the two for all I care. You finally got enough scoring and some rebounding and enough defense to maybe com- to compete with the Warriors. Um. Yeah, that's kind of the that's where the arms race in the West uh, kind of really lies or was laying was, you know, everybody thought, you know, Warriors and Clippers were going to be the next great rivalry because, you know, they don't like each other. The Warriors kind of came, you know, from the rear as everybody was looking for the Clippers to kind of be the team to win the championship in the next, you know, three to five years. But they got leapfrogged by the Warriors. And, and but look who <laughs> plays the three for the war. Look who's played the three for the Warriors the last three years. Uh, True, you know, it, 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 the gap is so wide. Even they don't even ha- they didn't even have an uh, a Durant type at the three, and they were still smoking the Clippers mm-hmm. because whoever they played at the three was such an elite defender that you know if they they defended and they gave you twelve or thirteen points a game. The gap was just too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at look at what they tried. And now, ironically, the Clippers even tried Matt Barnes, and he's back with the Warriors. So it's been a, it's been an interesting list. Uh, um, you look at, uh, uh, if you look up the Clippers' small forward position over the last ten years, you might laugh because they've tried everything. They've tried they've they've even tried Jamal Crawford twice. It's been ba- it's it's that bad. Let's shift over to uh, two other teams who've kind of been making some news before the offseason as uh, 
yesterday or Thursday, kind of leading up to the draft, it was uh, reported that the Spurs were maybe looking to get um, move LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, Paul Gasol has already um, opted out of his contract for the upcoming season. Um, and then the New York Knicks made a bunch of waves um, this week when Phil Jackson said that, um, yeah, Porzingis was on the uh, trade block and uh, he was listening to offers and uh, he is serious about moving them. So just kind of weigh in on those two teams and, and what are they thinking in their front offices? First thing, um, George didn't opt out. He's still under contract. He just announced that following the season, uh, the following next season. He oh, did I say Paul George? I meant to yeah. say Pau Gasol, excuse Paul Gasol, yeah. me, for the okay. Spurs, excuse me. Okay, well, I'm going I'm to go, I'm, I'm reason why I started, I was going to say about George is that the Pacers now have a very big problem. They want, they are going to have to trade George, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they didn't move him on draft night. And of course, every day that, uh, every day that passes is one less opportunity and one less asset that they'll, they'll get to right. have when they do trade George. Right. Um, you his know, value was at his absolute highest before he came out and said he wasn't going to come back. But once he and, said that, it's on the decline. And and and, and this is why Kevin Pritchard, who the the, uh, the GM of the of the Pacers, um, he kind of took it to publicly why um, you know Georgia's statement he quote felt like a gut punch. And I'm like, dude, you've known that Paul George was going to LA for about a year now. Why does him? saying it publicly have an effect on what you can do. I mean, there's, there's, there's real, it makes no difference. You, I mean, you got, you may have to say that publicly because you are, you're chosen to be the spokesman because you're the GM, but come on, who you think you fooled? Come on, man. You know, you knew Paul George wanted to be a Laker. Paul George has been talking about going to LA for three years. So what you saying? Yeah. Ever since they fired, was it Jaeger? Used to be their coach, the young, uh, uh, the, the no, young guy they had, coach of the Magic, um, uh, Vogue or whatever his name is, Frank Vogel. Frank Vogel, yes. Yeah, yeah. Once they fired him, Paul George's whole move towards Indiana. Shit. And that was with Larry Bird, and that was with Larry on the as uh, GM. Larry actually fired Vogel, so yeah, he he knew, and I think Larry knew even before he fired Vogel that he was leaving. So now the team is just in shambles. So right. Um, but I mean, what's their what's the little the Turner? Is that the guy that they have the rookie Miles. last year? Miles yeah, Turner. yeah. I mean, he's a I mean, he's a he's a good complimentary player for Paul George to have. Um, you know, they took a chance on um, Lance again, which is I don't know. Well, here's the problem. <laughs> Here, here's where, and a lot of people pointed this out. This is a bad sign when you reacquire Lance, and you are forced to have Lance be the leader of your team. Because your team is that, but your team is is just leaderless. There's no nobody's scared of the Pacers, and that, I think that was the problem. Nobody, nobody was um, nobody feared the Pacers at all. Even Cleveland, and, and they took Cleveland to uh, the brink in two of their in three of their four games. But Cleveland wasn't. Cleveland wasn't afraid. Cleveland, mm-hmm. Cleveland had no fear, and especially when they took Game Three. Uh, Nobody believed. Nobody believed that the Pacers were going to make a serious run, and the whole end of game, uh, game two, where the uh, Paul George press conference, where I got to have that shot. Uh, you know, the game winner when C.J. Miles took the game winning shot, and and of course he missed it, and then Paul publicly goes, you know, I got to have that shot. Then the Gatorade commercial airs, 
and of course the infamous stat that Paul George is 0 for 24 in game in game tying or potential game tying or lead changing shots in his career. So, uh, why is Paul George the hot topic? Because despite that stat, Paul George is an elite small forward, which is the most important position in the, in, in this changing NBA right now. Uh, you may have your elite point guard, you may have your elite two, but without the two-way small forward who can still get you buckets, he may have to get you 15 or 16 a game, but he may preserve 15 or 16 from preventing that, that elite small forward from getting to the rim. That's, that's super important. Now, he basically, you basically explained the jump of Kawhi Leonard into being, you know, from a good player to a superstar MVP voting, you know, caliber player. Yep. That's the evolution of the league in, in one, in one player. Uh, that's what Kawhi Leonard is. Um, Leonard, Leonard was playing for Steve Fisher at San, at uh, San Diego State. They had no clue he was going to. He had, you know, he's got big hands. He's a, um, you know, he's athletic. But adding to the fact that he, um, they knew he could score, but they never knew he would soap up Popovich's defensive positioning uh, drills like a sponge. And that's why he's become. Uh, yeah, arguably one of the top five players in the league right now. The way that I like to watch Kawhi play defense is he plays defense the way I play defense when I play against somebody who's faster than me. He almost is in the spot they want to go to when they get there. You know what I mean? Like, he takes an extra step to get to where they're trying to get to. So when they get to where they want to go, boom, he's already there. And and then when they want to shoot, when he gets ready to bring the ball up, his hands are right there to, you know, a lot of steals he creates when guys get ready to shoot because he's already at the spot that they're looking to go to. And he's real crafty like that. So never watch him play like next season. Just watch how he, he never reaches. He just always moves his feet. And a lot of times he'll beat guys when they're trying to drive to the spot they're trying to get to. And when they get there, he's, you know, steals the ball from them when they go up to shoot because he's there. So um, just talk about the Nick. His hand positioning. Oh, go ahead. I always watch when you watch your elite defenders, and this is a trick I learned from uh, Bruce Bourne talks about this. When, as far as your hand positioning, when when you are defending and you have your hand positioning, you don't want to necessarily put your hand in the guy's face per se. You want your hand to be where the ball may come up across from you. Mm-hmm. When your hand is there and you have to keep. The, this, you're forcing the shooter not to square up straight up. He has to square up at an angle. And once you get get to shoot get a shooter to do that, you will generally throw him off off target. Uh, you know, you you got a couple of exceptions like Alonzo Ball and a Kevin Martin because their their point of their center point is different with their shot form. But other than that, that's that's a key to stop to at least slow down some of the best shooters in the game. Um, before and we, Kawhi always does that. Before we wrap up, um, let's talk about um, Phil Jackson, uh, New York Knicks, and kind of the week that they've had. Um, okay, I'm going to start from the top of the list. Uh, rest in peace to Prodigy. Uh, Phil, <laughs> it, I had to laugh at this. Okay, first of all, uh, respect due to Stephen A. Smith as, you know, pioneer radio host and, and TV host. Uh, Stephen A. actually uh, was given permission to announce that the Knicks uh, were – the Knicks, Cavaliers, uh, Spurs – and Pacers were working on a five-team deal that would have resulted with um, 
Kawhi being moved, uh, possibly to the Pacers. Paul George and Carmelo Anthony going to uh, going to the Cavaliers. However, what de- what blew up the trade was um, Griffith being um, the GM of uh, the former GM of the Cavs, Doug Griffith being fired, and no one wanted to take Kevin Love's contract. So that was a major set. That was a major setback for the Knicks because Phil Jackson has been on the get Camelo out of here bandwagon for about three years now. Okay, well, then he goes public about Chris Porzingis skipping the exit meeting, the traditional exit meeting players players take at the end of the of the uh, at the end of the season. Uh, Phil goes into a diatribe that uh, he was seriously considering offers. Um, Danny Ainge admitted that he did call uh, for Boston. Of course, Danny, Danny being Danny, I mean, Danny's got got about six or seven first-round picks over the next three years, so why not? Uh, but the fact that Phil admitted that they were taking calls on moving Chris Dabbs for Zingas, which is your, which is the only thing you have gotten right in your in your era as Knicks president, uh, pretty much says a lot about what you've done in New York and. Of course, all the Knicks fans want him out. They want new leadership. You know, James Dolan has kind of made Phil Jackson the fall guy, and it's turned out to be a complete mess. And that was before they uh, they took um, Kinatina, while Dennis Smith and Malik Monk were on the board. Yeah, I thought that this draft was tailor-made for them to get Dennis Smith. But that was also me thinking that Phil Jackson was going to kind of loosen up his, um, you know, just desires to run this antiquated offense. But nope, <laughs> he's 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 going old man, and he is only, digging in. Not only did he not loosen up, several there were several draft um, several draftees said that he even doubled down. He even talked about the triangle in discussions with the coaching staffs and the, the potential draft draft prospects. Kilatina even said that he, he was talking about the triangle in his pre-draft workout. So yeah, he, he's double he's doubling down on this, which is unreal. <laughs> but but he's not, for a guy that's not coaching it, for him to double down on it is is hilarious. Right. Because the triangle is you know, of course, when the Bulls were successful, I know the Dallas Mavericks tried it when they had Jimmy Jackson and Jamal Mashburn. Um, no, Jason, uh, Kidd, Jason Kidd couldn't run it because it caught the ball out of his hands. Right. Um, there was, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, a couple of spots Jim Clemens went to, and every time he went there, he was trying to run the triangle, but it never worked because... Master in Boston? Oh, gosh. Yes, because what happens is, if you don't have Tex Winter, if you can't get Tex Winter to be your number one coach... It's not going to work, and that's the one guy Phil Jackson has always had by his side because he's the, it's his offense. He basically is the like guru of it. Mm-hmm. Phil Jackson is just the guy who can kind of, you know he's out front, but the guy who's actually doing all the strategic is is Tex. And if you don't have him, you're not going. I don't care what players you got, you're not going to be able to teach it to anybody. And and that is a hard offense to learn because you have to be so smart. Yeah, you you it is really built on, and I know it sounds silly. But it is literally taking all the possible angles to the basket and dividing it up into three pieces. It, yeah. it, it really is a lot. Of, it's a heavy math-involved offense. And when your guys are catching the ball at the, at the worst angles to shoot it 
and then you add the analytics of it, then yeah, it's not going to succeed. And you know, you got to figure. And, and of course, you had the figurehead in in uh, Derek Fisher to run it. Mm-hmm. Now you make, and like you said earlier, uh, earlier in the broadcast, uh, Hornacek looks worse than what he is. Um, I, I don't think Hornacek is this bad as a coach. I I, I think that you know he doesn't get a fair. He, he hasn't gotten a fair shake. And yeah, I, he got promised one thing, put his name on the contract, and got in the job and got something totally different. Yep, yep. He was. He, it was. It was the. It was the. As as to to quote um, uh, fellow Aggie alum uh, Jesse Jackson, hood winked and bamboozled would I think be the proper the appropriate term. <laughs> because uh, now, because now it makes sense. It makes now if you go back and you think about when Derek Fisher and and uh, Steve Kerr were both going to get hired it was clear that they were both going to get a job it was like just where are they going to go it was so what what that tells me is steve kerr probably would have went to the knicks but when he met with phil if it was insistent on him running the triangle and he was like oh i got something that's like new age i want to try it if it was like nah we're gonna go with what we know i think that's what made going to the warriors real easy for steve that kerr actually that's exactly what happened um that is that is pretty much to the letter what happened um Phil was saying, uh, Kerr presented the offense to Phil, and Phil basically said, scrap it. And this is after uh, Jackson had led the Warriors to the playoffs and upset the, uh, you know, at the seven game series against the Clippers. So uh, that was easy. It was an easy choice for um, for uh, Kerr. You're right. How bad does Mark Jackson have to be to work under if he couldn't figure out how to make it work to stay the coach of that team? You know what? Um, there is talk of a blackballing occurring of Mark Jackson because of his um, there, because of other factors off the court. I mean, just be playing with it. I mean, his there, I, he's too much church. We'll put it that way. Yeah, I think that he's. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna be playing. They, they believe that he's he is the ultimate choir boy. He's actually an ordained minister, and I think that the lifestyles that these guys want to live. Um, he he wouldn't tolerate, and mind you, uh, he he Mark Mark strongly feels that the lifestyle that his uh, younger brother lived, uh, who is uh, the famous street baller um, Escalade, led to his death, and it's a per- it's a personal thing with him, and I believe that he's had some issues with some players, and they just. Aren't going? To, they just wanted him out. I think it was more of a player revolt than it was management. Management got the blame and they took the sword. But I really believe that it is a player. It is a player thing because it's a player's lead. If I if if a coach wants in and he's got the sake of the players, he's he's gonna get a job. Just the players just have too much clout right now. Uh, and you know, and who knows? Mark may be happy uh, getting getting well paid to commentate games from ESPN because that I mean it, it does pay it very well. I just think that uh there's a possibility that he may be blackballed. I you know some 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 play, some of the top players in the league don't like Jackson. I personally believe that. Well before we get ready to go just uh make sure you guys don't blackball us here at CSPN. 
uh, please go to our website, cspn.us, click on the tab that says support our podcast, and help keep the podcast free. Um, support our sponsors. Uh, we are linked with Amazon. Amazon has everything in the world that you could possibly purchase. So the next time you're thinking about purchasing something, uh, go through cspn.us, click on the tab that says support, then click on the Amazon tab. You'll go into Amazon as you normally would, do your shopping, pay for your purchases, and some of what you pay for will come back to us to help keep the podcast free every week here on CSPN. All right, Tyler, so we'll, you know, go into our final thoughts, um, you know, wrap it up, uh, shout outs, or, you know, a final topic that you just want to speak on before we go for this week's show. Okay, just to close out, um, I'm just going to reiterate my point where um, the draft, uh, the the draft is always a particular time where all the franchises believe that they have hope that they can do something, that they can improve and get better, or in some cases, um, get one step closer to competing for a championship. Um, I think that the process is is pretty cool, um, and I think it's cooler than the NFL because. Of course, there are less players, so we get a little bit more insight to how the players can have an impact on the roster. So the NBA has made the draft its thing, and somehow, because of the way it falls, that's not easy to do. Um, you know, it's after the finals, and right now they even positioned the NBA awards after it. So it, they do a great job of marketing and promoting it. Um, I'm fortunate to have some some. Uh, guys that I attend the college with that are in marketing and they got, they made appearances at the draft themselves. So, so my, my Snapchat feed was very, 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 very interesting to just see it, see the spectacle of it. And of course it's in Brooklyn. So it was interesting to watch. It was interesting to see the reactions. Um, also um, I'd like to, i like to say that we're now in a period on the score where, it's it's kind of like the NCAA's quote unquote dead period, where you know you have one major sport going on, which is baseball. Um, so what we're going to try to do is have some some off scale topics. Um, you know, we, this is the 40th anniversary of Title IX, so I plan to have uh, some women who have made an impact in our in the media, sports media industry. I'm working on those interviews. Um, we're also going to have some some guest hosts coming soon so please stay tuned to know the score all right um i'd like to just direct everybody over to an interview that i conducted that we have put up underneath the know the score uh banner where i got a chance to sit down for almost 40 minutes with uh mike burling um the general manager of the durham bulls um the durham bulls are the team that the movie bull durham is um about um they're the most famous minor league franchise in the world and uh, we had a discussion just talking about uh sports management and you know how to get in it and kind of what his work details and kind of his relationship um in the community and kind of their relationship with tampa bay double rays as their parent company so um yeah you guys check that out like i said it's about a 40 minute uh interview um some really good insight into mike um who i've known for almost 20 years um um, just through working at the stadium and then now that I don't work there, it just kept the relationship up. Um, so yeah, check it out. Um, it's pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, to be honest with you. So uh, yeah, go check that out. Um, it's up right now, SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, CSPN.us. So for my co-host, Tyler Ball, I'm Don DeLorente, and now you know the score.